Welcome back to Zero Books and Repeater Media. This is Asset Horizon on Zero Repeater, and today we have the pleasure and honor of speaking again with Jason Reed, who appeared on the channel with us to sit for an episode on the origins of capital and primary accumulation. Jason is the author of several books, including his recent text, The Production of Subjectivity, which is available on Haymarket Press, and coming soon, or at least in the future, two Verso books is the text in focus today. The Double Shift, Marx and Spinoza on the Politics of Work, a book which explains the ways that the economic and sociopolitical realities are co-produced. No doubt we'll get into the weeds with some philosophy, but we also want to bring to light some of the palpable ways that these ideas cash out for all working people. Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this turn of phrase, the double shift. It, it appears multiple times throughout the book. What does it mean and what does it have to do with the convergence of Marx and Spinoza? I wanted to do several things with that title. I mean, the first most obvious like point of resonance is, is people are working more and longer hours in order to be able to pay for the things they need. So pulling a double, as one says, is become more and more necessary. But then more figuratively and less literally, one of the things I wanted to do with the idea of the double shift is think about this, this notion of when when something from from one area or activity has effects on other areas or activities i mean the most basic and fundamental one and the first one i talk about in the book is you know there is this this figure that's been more or less useful for a long time in marx's thought of the idea of a basin superstructure and you know the scheme of this figure that economic activity is on the bottom, it makes up the base, and then things like politics, law, ideology are the superstructure resting on it. And in some sense, you know, thanks to later thinkers like Althusser, there's also this insistence that the superstructure doesn't just rest on the base, it in some sense feeds back into it and makes it possible, most importantly, because it keeps people returning to work every day because they need to be trained and motivated and and disciplined. But one of the, the negative effects of this, this schema, I think, is that it has allowed people to think about this kind of odd division where the economy is understood to sort of function almost by mute compulsion, to use that phrase, by its own, by imposing necessity, necessity of having to work and and because there's no other way to get access to commodities and and then on top of that there's ideology but ideology is understood often to work for the economy by sort of not being itself economic or having no economic aspect to it you know the the classic examples of this are like you know workers who are more motivated by things like nationalism or racism that keeps them working and, and keeping in their place in the economy. And so there's this odd division where the economy is understood to be sort of this iron cage that functions without having an ideological component and ideology is understood to be non-economic. And the reason why I think that fails us is because of the way in which specifically work is both an economic relation, but it's also 
I would argue it's has ideological layers built on top of it. To work is to be seen as worthwhile. It is to be seen as morally upstanding. That work is understood not just as an economic relation, but an ethical, a moral, political. So that the the division between the economy and ideology doesn't help us make sense of the way in which aspects of the economy are themselves ideological. That's great. You, you've you actually answered in advance some of the questions that I had at the top, but that's perfect because I have plenty of them. One of the things that really stood out to me, especially in reading the introduction of the book, and it appears in the chap- the other chapter that you sent us as well, is the importance of the imagination in this book as a site of political contestation. As you write, the almost mythic element in determining our collective fantasies about work. And you even bring up the myth of Prometheus in relation to this ideology about work. And I'd love for you to unpack that if you think that's germane to the discussion. But perhaps a better topic might be how you envision the reclamation of the imagination amidst the idea that our social reality is materially and imminently determined. In the previous answer, I talked a lot about the way in which the economy extends into ideology. But I would also argue that part of this double is these thinking about these relations is working both ways, that the ideology or the mythic aspect also in turn filters into the economy as well, in the sense that if you think about the way in which people understand or make sense of what it means to be a real worker, right? This is a very important and loaded term that there's always this notion that, you know, some people are real workers actually doing something productive and other people are are not. And you find versions of this both very much on the right and, and some versions of this in sort of left workerism as well. But usually those distinctions that exclude certain types of work, right? While we always imagine sort of construction and not service work, we imagine producing things and not caring for people as work, that to some extent, our images of work are as ideological as they are economic. So there's a there's a sense in which work extends from the economy into, into ideology, but ideology and ideas about being productive and being worthwhile extend into are very economic divisions and in some sense confuse and and conflate things so that the double is is a relation working in both in both ways. Yeah, one of the common sort of go-to examples that we see online is the notion that the barista does not add value to the coffee. Right. But somehow the person mixing cement, whoever pours the water into the cement mix, that person is indeed adding the value. And so it it sort of bypasses the complexities of value theory. But with that said, let's get some other folks in the discussion. We have Adam and Will with us. Adam, did you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, just wanted to build off actually a little bit on the, particularly this idea you focus on, Jason, about, about work and especially about the idea of work versus labor and particularly the idea of an inflation of the concept of labour, which obscures the ways in which we can actually escape work. Because I'd like to help you unpack that a little bit, because, of course, the the word labour could be attached to so many more things these days, and not to invalidate, Mm -hmm. for example, certain concepts like emotional labour, but nonetheless, the Mm -hmm. idea of labour can definitely much expand beyond the confines of work and the social relations to produce work. And I wanted to ask you, if you could expand on this idea of labour versus work, it's just like an opposition between them in terms of the history of how we understand them. 
also if, if labor maybe in this dynamic has a kind of mystifying or mystificatory sort of function there um, yeah i mean i just want to kind of harken back as well to the paper you sort of we read last time you was with us which has this amazing phrase you know the the order and connection of the imagination is the same as the order and the order and connection of exploitation i wonder if, if this is like a development of that more central thesis there too yeah well yeah it, def it definitely is i mean i guess one of the things in thinking about work labor etc one of the the formulations that I found very provocative is in Kathy Week's book, The Problem with Work, where she talks about the, the current situation around work is both, she refers to it as a simultaneous overvaluation of work in mm. almost a, a, a ethical or metaphysical sense where work is seen to be so important to one's existence, to be without work is to in some sense be without a reason to exist. And it's, I'm not going to get her phrasing correctly right, but it's, it's, she talks about a simultaneous overvaluation and undervaluation. The undervaluation, of course, is mm. on pure material terms that, that work is pure, is poorly it's poorly compensated while at the same time being elevated to a matter of ethical, mm. Um, importance and that to engage in a critique of work is to in some sense counter both those things at once and to me you know which is, which is a paradoxical process right because because you know there's this is mm. tension amongst various left politics you know of is this a critique of capital from the perspective of work or is it a critique of work you know, which of mm. those two things are, and those are very different. Those involve very different sort of strategies because if you're criticizing mm. capital from the perspective of work, you're primarily concerned with making work uh, better paid, safer, you know, less onerous for workers. But if you're, if you're a critique of work, then you're calling into question the very division between work and non-work as many people do in terms of pointing out mm. that how much, Things that are not counted as work, you know, in terms of things that happen in the home or things that happen in in caring for others, like children and the elderly, are important and productive, even if they don't count as work. So for me, you know, going back to this phrase, the simultaneous overvaluation and undervaluation of work, to me, one of the things that I was very interested in thinking about is the connection between the overvaluation and undervaluation and there's interesting like empirical evidence about this as well that that james mccollum in his book overwork talks about how the phrases about like meaningful work have become more and more important as people spend more and more time working right that there is a which i mean which in some sense stands to reason and one of the things that i'm you know very interested in and this is coming from the more spinoza side of things is the way you know spinoza has a line where he says you know we we tend to want to imagine the things that increase our power and it's a very ambiguous line at least in how i read it because the imagination as many people have discussed has a kind of it kind of has an ambivalent relation in Spinoza. It can be both the source of making important 
connections between disparate things that help us understand them. So the imagination can be the precursor to conceptual understanding, but the imagination can also be the thing that keeps us locked into poor ways of making sense of things. And the tendency to imagine the things that increase our power is an interesting formulation because sometimes it seems to me that one can think about the way in which, you know, we are often drawn to, and it goes back to the order and connection of ideologies, the order and connection of exploitation. We're drawn to make sense of things in a way that fit our existing circumstances, right? And and one of the things that going back to the, my, my initial point about, about people being more attached to work being meaningful the longer they have to work, well, it almost makes sense that if you spend most of your activity and time and energy doing something, you'd want to see that something as more important, right? It becomes harder and harder to think of it as just your day job, just that thing you do because you're actually more interested in X. If you have no time or energy for X, you're going to imagine work as more important to your standing than it, than it might be. You know, I think one of the things that, that, that really, you know, interests me and I talk about in the book is attachment to work even when work doesn't seem to be doing anything for people, like it's not, it's not making it possible to buy all sorts of consumer goods. It's barely paying the bills. It doesn't seem tied to any sort of trajectory of, you know, I'm going to be climbing the ranks of this, of this job and getting, it just seems to be drudgery and why the drudgery leads to an overvaluation of work as the basis for someone's moral and ethical standing. This, this I think, really connects well to a point in the, in the act that order and the connection of ideology and order connection of exploitation essay, which just really stuck with me since we last spoke. And it was your description of the changing role of money, especially mm-hmm. you know, from a relatively somewhat welfareist with a guarantee of somewhat of a social safety net money is in the sense you have the basics relatively provided there's a chance they could be provided and then money motivates and level of hope and mm-hmm. then going on what you said about the drudgery of work the shifting from as you said in that you know that paper about money being more rewarding off fear and providing hope for a future that's did you do you think the, the affect of, of fear is that if it can actually intensify then this imaginative investment rather than hope is that in a way is is fear more powerful than hope in the world of contemporary work maybe a bit more of an existential question but it seems in the sort of spinozian sort of calculus that it might end up Mm -hmm. being a bit like that yeah that's a really interesting question you know one of the things that i talk about in the book is there's a kind of a a debate or disagreement between two people who have th- thought a lot about work, Frederick Lordon and Peter mm. Fleming. And, you know, F- Frederick Lordon has this, this, this sentence, which is very unfortunate. You know, he says the, the world of contemporary work is the world of the girlfriend experience. And I never know if he's, if he's referring to the Soderbergh film or the phrase from which the Soderbergh film gets its name. But the point being is that you have to pretend that appearing to like the job is part of the job, right? Appearing to be attached to the job. And this is something that other people have pointed out in the, 
the history of transformations of what's called emotional or affective labor, right? The early formulations of emotional labor were you were performing the emotion for the customer, right? The, the primary example that Arlie Hochschild talks mm. about were, were flight attendants and how they have to pretend to be cheery and, 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 and at ease no matter what happens on the plane because it's part of their job. And the, the emotion has to be shown to the customer. But different people, I'm thinking Ivor Southwood wrote that great book for, for Zero a long time ago, Nonstop Inertia, where he talks about the, the contemporary emotional labor is often performed not just for the customer, but for the boss as well. You know, he mentions in that stories of people who, you know, get get in trouble for for their attitude shown while stocking shelves late at night at like a Tesco or something when no one's no one's there are no customers there. But but that emotional labor. So that's what I think Lordon is talking about, that the performance becomes important to it. Now Peter Fleming has argued that Lordon is kind of not really looking at what's really happening with work. He's looking at too much of what, how people talk about work and says that em contemporary employers and corporations work more on cultivating a sense of constant dread and fear than they do a sense of love for work. That, And here's where things get even worse with the sort of misogynistic metaphors. He says the world of contemporary work is the world of the psycho girlfriend experience, right? Constant fear of abandonment and so on. So I don't really, I don't want to condone these, these metaphors, but I do think that there is an interesting debate about this division between fear and hope in contemporary work. And, and I think that to kind of, you know, tie these two together I don't want to say like it's a matter of deciding are people driven by hope or the sense they might improve their lives and that money can be used to buy things they want. Or are they driven by fear and the fear that if they run out of money, they'll be out on the street and so on. I think it's more complicated than that. And it's also about hmm. what we attach our hopes and fears to. And I think that, you know, one of the, it's, it's the hope has to be attached to, or the desire has to be attached to work understood in an incredibly individualistic way, right? It's the idea that my own personal performance will, will, will guarantee my security, which is why I think that, that, mm. you know, breaking bad is kind of like the Horatio Alger myth of the modern era, right? Because it's very much about not so much, work understood as a collective enterprise is something that I share with other people and we're able to organize and, and improve our conditions. But it's this idea that I could become so skilled and so good at my job that no one could fire me, no one could replace me, and I would necessarily get both the material and sort of psychic recognition I desire from 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 work. Yeah, it makes me think too on the same topic, the the split perhaps between the working poor and the middle class and the way that the, the tendencies that each one of those groups embodies in terms of the way that they use money uh, mm -hmm. and the kinds of things that they purchase and the, the sort of expenditures that they allow themselves are, are connected very firmly to 
their political imagination broadly construed, whether that means imagining you know, a, a future vacation, for example, a weekend trip, the prospect of perhaps getting a graduate degree, all of that up against whether or not you know, to spend one's weekly paycheck or wage bundle on a packet of fudge rounds, for example, like all of that, yeah, you know, to invoke a, a more recent example of, of, of this discourse, but to see how all of that sort of like plays into one another and, and going back to the question of imagination seems profoundly important to me where even the prospect of leaving the capitalist system that at each sort of I, I won't call them classes, of course, but it, within each one of those groups, working poor, what we might call the sort of average working class person, middle class, upper middle class, all have within them a sort of upper limit beyond which the prospect of not working in the sort of capitalist sense is available to us. But imagining beyond those limits would mean absolutely rupturing this localized personal economies, you know, that we have set up for ourselves. Anecdotally, viewing my own evolution throughout life, working small jobs, part-time, full-time, and so forth, to see how, how my imagination has evolved in terms of what I can do within the constraints of this mm -hmm. society and what's at risk when challenging it. And so I think an important part of the, the class struggle, and, and I'm not sure if you get into this in the book, is, is finding the point of convergence between all of those sort of sub-economies of desire within the greater capitalist libidinal economy. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I talk about, you know, I mean, one of the things that goes back to this double shift idea is that if, you know, if our, what we're capable of imagining is in some sense constrained and shaped by our material conditions and how we live and the same time what we're you know sometimes they're shaped by our material conditions then our imagination in turn limits to what extent we can we can change or alter our material conditions right there's a sort of vicious circle there you know of 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 the order and connection of exploitation being the same as the order and connection of 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 ideology and how do we break that how do we break that and i do think that for me the imagination is an important both point of reinforcement but also point of challenge that if you can imagine different things you can then begin to act differently i mean i think to some extent you know I think there's been a lot, you know, and I, I was talking with some of you guys earlier about, about the sort of great resignation. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that happened in that brief moment was that things that we were told were impossible suddenly just became possible, right? The idea that people would be given money independent of work and even given money so they wouldn't go into work right being paid to sort of stay home so suddenly money was completely detached from work for for a brief moment right not very long at all and in fact that's one of the things about it right because the weird thing about the great resignation is some people came on and said well people are still living off of their you know their their checks their the the, the checks that trump sent out early on and you know if you do the math like no one was living off of those like thousand whatever it was dollar checks for that long I think the reason that people did, you know, leave jobs or switch jobs or or do so, try to do something different was not like a material thing. 
that money could only go so far, although probably had bigger effects was ceasing student loan payments for a long period of time on, on a material condition that that had probably longer lasting effects. But it was to some extent the the space of the imagination that it opened, which, of course, and now there's been a great deal. I think a great deal of work has been to foreclose that, to close that again. Right. And to make sure that, you know, this is why, you know, it's, it's imperative no matter what happens to sort of never acknowledge COVID as anything more than an individual situation or an individual choice choice now, because, because the, the very, the very existence of it as a collective phenomena sort of had, had effects, which from the perspective of capital were not good effects. And they continue to be. I mean, because I think there's also the imagination also has, you know, I, I think when we, when, we, when we say imagine, you know, we really mean, I mean, I, you know, in some fundamental way, just to kind of picture and envision what is possible. And I think the imagination, in some sense, worked both in a positive direction, like separating income and livelihood from from work however briefly it also worked in a negative situation i think some people were fundamentally shocked and surprised at how indifferent their employers were to their own well-being and the sense that you know people were being exposed to the possibility of of sickness is something that they you know because you know, go back to the question of ideology, to believe in the ideology of work is to believe you can work hard enough to become a valued employee, right? And, but to some extent, from the perspective of capital, you're always a replaceable employee. I think we're going to turn to some philosophical questions. Will, you have something. I do. The question of the relationship between let's say affective labor and labor in relation to like an exterior object, whether that be the production of like an isolatable commodity, right? Is one that has been kind of a fundamental problem for the history of philosophy long before like the humanist advent of German anthropological philosophical works like the Young Hegelians, Ludwig Feuerbach, people like that, right? Or even just the, the manuscripts, Mm-hmm. This is something, and you you touch on this even like you 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 pinpoint this in the the double shift chapter. I think it's chapter four, where you're like, oh, it's it. You you point to Aristotle, and I was like, that's right. The distinction here between energeia and ergon, right? And I think that as much as we can talk about like how these are like takes, right? There are the sort of what we could reduce to like vulgar Marxists, right? Who make the horrendous comments about service workers, right? <laughs> Versus, you know, the good upstanding, largely white, largely male, you know, construction worker group that they've constructed in their mind as much as <laughs> they have in any actual like isolatable reality has as much to do with the fact that perhaps Perhaps we have to return to these questions at the level of what a productivist ontology has done to us, right? One of the things that like Craig has been interested in in the last few weeks has been the work of Paul, Paul Lafargue, right? Mm-hmm. With the, the right to be lazy. And mm-hmm. Lafargue starts his account not 
you know, in the, not in the 19th century, you know, not in 19th century England, not in industrial, industrializing France, industrialized England, industrialized Germany, but actually in Greece, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the relationship that they had to, to labor. So I'm going to ask a question that's going to expose me as being like a neophyte when it comes to Aristotle, because like I struggle with Aristotle. How much of this do you think rather, okay, this is going to be a very general question. How much of this do you think comes down to not just having an adequate account of the quote-unquote philosophical break in Marx from you know, the young Hegelians to what would become the materialist analysis of the dialectic to, uh, to instead understanding Marx's acquaintance and deep and delicate understanding of classical philosophy mm -hmm. right because so much of what's in the 1844 manuscript when read no longer through the you know the post-war maybe althusserian understanding of marx's philosophical break but instead read through marx's serious engagement with classical philosophy kind of remains the same labor potentiality and the delicacy of Aristotle's account of potentiality, actuality, and then the work itself, the, the item itself, seems to, seems to still remain problematized, even if you know, Marx is no longer in. So what do we gain if instead of maybe asking the question, what if Marx had engaged with, with Spinoza instead of Hegel? Right, the mm -hmm. famous question that that Althusser asked: What if we say no? Marx engaged with Aristotle, and you know, delicately, right? What do we? Is there something to be gained in in the passing comments? Because for me, what really stuck out was your your analysis of Arendt and Verno's dynamic, Paolo mm -hmm. Verno's dynamic, and that that comment on Aristotle. I found those to be to be fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll say, I think one of the things that really strikes me is why there hasn't really been a lot of interesting rethinking of Marx of the 1844 manuscripts. I mean, we've all kind of taken as, as given they're humanist, and we either think that they're humanist and it's bad, or they're humanist and it's good, and that's the, the marks we should want. But but almost no one wants to say, like, maybe there's other ways of reading them. Although I will say, well, two things. First is, and this is a shameless plug, I it came out, I, I translated Frank Fischbach's book. It's called Marx, well, it's called in English, Marx with Spinoza, Production, Alienation, History from Edinburgh Press. And it's one of those hardcovers, it's incredibly expensive now. Hopefully it will come out in softcover eventually. But you know, he. I think he 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 really tries to say the real the real Spinoza Marx connection is not you know sort of the epistemological aspects of capital, but it's really the whole all that stuff about man being a part of nature, man transforming nature that's in the eighteen forty four manuscripts. You read that along with with Spinoza, and you get something that's not humanism. At least, if by humanism you understand what what Spinoza understood by humanism, which is us seeing ourselves as a kingdom within a kingdom, separate from the rest of the world and distinct from how the rest of the world functions. So that's my first point about eighteen forty-four manuscripts. And a second point 
is going back to this 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 question of what is production. I mean, I've always had personally, I've always had a skewed relationship to well, not the, in part the eighteen forty four manuscripts, but really Marx's eighteen fifty seven introduction, part of the Grandrissa, but where. You know, because the skewed relationship comes from reading reading Deleuze and Guattari first. You know, a lot of weird things happen when you read things out of order, and their line, you know, that everything is in a certain sense, everything is production, which is a line that you know I do think that, and I I tend to read it in a more Spinozist way, right? Spinoza says there's no cause from which from which no from which some effect does not follow, right? I mean, that part of imminence in the Spinoza sense is that you know God is nature. But it also means nature is nothing other than the expression of God. That in a certain sense, nothing is insignificant. Everything has an effect, right? And I do think that there is, when it comes to bringing this back to questions about work, you know, one of the things I find very troubling in some ways is that some critics of work, and I think Kathy Weeks is a good example of this, want to come back to the point that, like, it's almost like a version of everything is production. Like, like if people were not forced to sell their wage labor, they'd probably be doing something, right? You know, caring for their kids, interacting. Like, it's a sort of sense that that you know. And I think there's a, a important point to this, right? This is counter, you know, the the Oliver Anthony's of the world, and that this idea that no one just wants to sit on their butt and eat fudge rounds. That people. If you separated people off entirely from work, they would still engage in some kind of activity. And, and chances are, and this is why people make this argument, that that activity would probably be more socially productive than a lot of the stupid and destructive things people have to do in order to earn a wage. But I do, I, I find that slippage from the ontological to the social around that point to be very troubling, right? I do think it's true. I mean, ontologically, as a Spinozist, I have no problem with the idea that there is no cause from which some effect doesn't follow. Right? We're always, we're constantly being productive in that sense. We're constantly producing effects, all kinds of effects. I don't think you can quickly go back from that to saying, like, then just give us a social wage because we're going to be doing stuff. I just, I, Quick slippages from the ontological to the political like that freak me out. It's one of the problems in in the later in the later Antonio Negri, right? Is, yes. Yeah. So yeah. So all this has been a way to avoid Aristotle in your question, because I mean, to me, the 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 thing that I find most striking, and this is this is sort of talk about Marx and Aristotle, right? Of two things. One is, you know, in Capital, Marx says about Aristotle, Aristotle, you know, like he, when Aristotle tried to think about value, because Aristotle does have a, an account of exchange value and use value in the in the politics. He says, you know, things are a shoe is useful for being a shoe, and it's also can be exchanged for something else. But as Marx says, Aristotle couldn't solve the question of value. Because in order to solve the question of value, he would have to understand that it's labor and it's labor indifferent of who is producing it, right? It's abstract labor. And the reason that Aristotle couldn't see that is because he lived in a slave 
economy in the slave society and was very caught up, right? And this is a lot also happens in the politics of the idea that there, there are different kinds of labor and the difference ties into how closely they are tied to nature, biology, and most importantly, necessity, right? That a that someone who is reproducing the conditions for existence is different from a craftsperson because of that. And, and so here, I guess what I'm suggesting is, and this is also the point in the book I cite, it's a great little line, Aaron Bedinoff's line about Aristotle, that, that Aristotle was an acceler- uh, sort of an accelerationist before accelerationism existed, right? Because Aristotle says also in the politics that until you know shuttles can weave of themselves and other you know other mechanic tools can work on their own we will always need slavery and so in a weird way aristotle kind of posited and posited in his own inability to imagine that slavery always be a part of human society until we could fully automate everything and I think that I guess I bring up these two things because for me, it's interesting how much the Aristotle-Marx relation is about what even Aristotle couldn't imagine. And I think that 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 Marx has a great deal of respect and reverence for Aristotle, but he he constantly comes up against this point: Aristotle couldn't imagine labor as the basis of value because it would mean thinking a kind of abstract equivalence of labors that was unimaginable to someone of his period. And Aristotle couldn't imagine a world without slavery because he couldn't imagine full automation. I think Aristotle might be right. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not espousing full automation here, yeah. but but I do think those two points are interesting. And and it's so interesting too, because now I'm thinking about Aristotle's, you know, really, really like I like I'm gonna crib a term from Calvin Warren and say like there's an onto like an onto violence in Aristotle's account of work where there is like a being without that kind of work, without the energia that's pure fluctuation. And that's the the slave the mm-hmm. slave for aristotle can know what phronesis is but it doesn't have it and it therefore doesn't have the kind of work that that the that the proper body of the human being has which is not the and then <laughs> to connect that back to 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 craig's essay on lafargue like when when Lafargue is talking, oh, the Greeks had this like disdain for labor. It's like, yeah, but their disdain was like for the slaves. Like they had to do the labor, right? So much mm-hmm. of this comes down to like such, such a, a remarkable and exceptional society, like a society predicated on the exception and who constitutes a proper human being. Like mm-hmm. so, in in a certain sense, our inability to to like the we we like Jasper Burns will make jokes like oh one day we'll know where the labor comes from right like or where the value comes from in the process it's like the inability to get to the 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 
capacity we have to answer that, to, to even try to answer that question, comes from this remarkably violent, violent history that I think still remains to us somewhat hidden. Like it can come through in like these ephemeral sparks, like in your comment just now, but then it'll recede again. You know, and we'll go back to asking to asking fundamentally different questions that are, I think, equally important and, and as illuminating. But it's just so hard to to follow this this line of 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 violence. Great. I wanted to bring up an example from the chapter that you gave me and kind of elaborate upon it, and then perhaps we could talk about it conceptually, and and, and maybe there's a political question that we can ask of it as well. First, a quote from your book, and this is from the chapter Pulling a Double. You write that there is neither pure politics unencumbered by material conditions and conflicts, nor is there a pure logic of technical reproduction untouched by politics or conflict. And just moving backwards within the text, here's the example. There was a time in history, whether it be you were a factory worker, an office worker, or working in a supermarket, perhaps, perhaps there was an implicit demand to be quiet on the job. Mm -hmm. And then as we move to the 21st century, the idea of communication takes a higher value to the extent that we are urged to be more communicative at work, do little teamwork sessions and so forth. And, and this can span a variety of jobs, you know, from being a barista, being a preschool teacher, to working at a call center. And so now there's this injunction to, you know, perform rather than mm. remain in this sort of vacuole of silence, you know, at your desk. And what I, what I think is interesting is, I, I mean, you, you kind of pull in Paolo Virno in, in discussion with Hannah Arendt here to talk about how the political and the economic kind of converse with one another. B before we go on, may maybe you could speak to that a little bit in context, in the context of Virno's work, where he inverts this philosophical framework held by Hannah Arendt and, and talk about the co-production of our sociopolitical reality and our economic reality. How does that argument work? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, just to kind of take a step back to be clear about everything, right. You know, part of his argument is that Arendt's worry, right, Arendt kind of following and building off of Aristotle understood there to be these three separate spheres, labor, labor understood as the production of the necessities of our biological existence, it's cyclical, it can never be completely done with, work, which is where we produce the, the physical and lasting things that make up our human world and the, the world of work was necessarily instrumental and teleological, governed by its ends and and violent in the in its accomplishment of those ends. And then action, which is predicated on the plurality and interrelation amongst other human beings. And that she saw the real concern was that work was taking over the sphere of action in the sense that politics was becoming instrumental teleological, and so on. I mean, and she expresses concern in many ways. It's her concern about Marx, but it's also her concern about modern sort of like, you know, manufactured politics. You know, like the, the example I give is like to think about, there's no real difference between the way in which a political slogan or speech 
is wielded out than a, a new model of SUV is wielded out, right? It's tested, it's it's checked, you know, with focus groups, and then it's brought out into the world to produce certain effects. And of course, Vino reverses this and says, no, no, that's not what's happened. That in our in our day jobs, we have to engage with what used to be action. We have to deal with the plurality of human beings. We have to deal with unpredictable situations. I think one of Virno's strengths as coming from the post-autonomous tradition is who a lot of them talked about immaterial labor and so on, is that Virno really thought that he, when he was talking about that, he didn't necessarily mean like the high paying and desirable jobs of being like a, a, a CEO where you're constantly dealing with relationships. He meant this is like, if you're working in like retail, this is what you're dealing with because you're constantly dealing with people. You don't know what they want. You don't know who they are. You don't know if they're going to be difficult or, 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 or have, you know, and even in today's day and age, if they have undiagnosed mental issues or whatever the case may be, you're going to have to deal with unpredictable situations in your work. Now, and, and, you know, and I think Virno tied his fact that, I mean, for Vierno, there's this weird way in which, because our work has become so political, we're not that interested in politics, because politics seems to be much less dynamic than than work existence. But one of the other things about Vierno that's worth bringing up in terms of the previous conversation about Aristotle, the other thing that Vierno thought about contemporary capitalism, which I think is very important in this conversation, is that to some extent. Contemporary capitalism is the first mode of production, first society, which doesn't just actualize human potential, right? Because you can argue that human beings have these, we have potential, we have these capacities to, to learn, to do different things. And by and large, most historically existing societies have been an actualization of some of those potentials, right? People do this to get their food. They fish or they hunt or they grow things and they actualize other aspects of their potential. Just, just the same way in which you could say every existing language is an actualization of some of the potential sounds human beings can make, right? But, and, but Virno's second point about that is that capitalism is the first society that doesn't try to just actualize potential, but exploit potential as potential. And tying this back to Marx's theory of abstract labor, that to some extent, the abstraction is the point in the sense that, you know, the modern ideal employee is not necessarily someone who has this and that specific skill but someone who has really demonstrated their ability to learn this or that specific skill so they can learn other future skills, right? And I think the, the interesting thing about, about Virno's analysis is that, I mean, he in some sense is offering a very historicized account of a claim which is often not historicized, and that is claims that try to equate capitalism with human nature. And Virno's point is that it's not like it's our supposedly competitive or whatever nature, but it is the first society or mode of production to be interested not in this or that actualization of our potential, but in the exploitation of our potential as potential. 
And I do think that this, this ties into the way in which we can get attached to work because work seems for some people to be so intimately tied with their understanding of their own capacities. I mean, I think one of the great talking about the imagination, one of the great films to contemporary confront our imagination around work is Boots Riley's film, Sorry to Bother You. And one of the things I think makes that film great on so many different levels is the fact that the main character, Cassius, played by Keith Stanfield, like, he's not just one of these, like, you see populating so many cinematic representations of work. He's not a disaffected office drone. He goes into the call center and finally feels like he is doing something that is being counted for something. He finally feels like his potential is actually being wrecked, even though this potential comes at an incredible alienation from his existence, right? He has to do the white voice. But even the white voice to him, if you haven't seen the film, right? Like he's Stanfield's black and he's called by, and he has, he's Danny Glover explains to him the best way to be a call center worker is to sound not like a white person but like a what a white person aspires to be, to sound sort of comfortable and confident in society. And so there's an interesting combination in that film between alienation and expression of one's potential. And I do think that, that I think if we're going to combat the dominance of work over, imag- over our imagination for our existence, we have to first acknowledge how well, for some people, the world of work is for seeming to address potentials that they might otherwise think would languish and be unrecognized otherwise. I mean, I think the idea that in a way capitalism is kind of selling your own potential back to you after having essentially reduced capitalism capitalizes not only on the plasticity of the human bodies or the modularity of the the canatus as Spinoza says, but I think it's really really important as well to think about it in terms of it does mess you know it, it capitalizes on our metamorphosis, our capacity to transform in order so that it fixes us into one or two forms, a skill set mm-hmm. which is translatable across infinite well in, practically infinite spheres of work. I mean, what I mean by this is, for example, you can learn to ride a bike. You can ride a bike delivering food for ten different companies, ten different apps. And I think, I mean, I was originally going to ask something about communication, really, because. I mean, as as the, the the use of Paolo Verno in this text is is really good, but I, I maybe another point I'd like to hone in on is the question of of politics as detached from the economy, because you do mention in a way that politics as is typically constru- construed under this ideological configuration ends up meaning that politicians become sort of the avatars of politics, and in that sense, rather than taking it out on bosses, the function of the politician now, especially a representative politician, becomes a kind of a homeostatic mechanism. You let off your steam at us so that we can swap it between each other and then the whole thing carries on. So I guess I want to ask if you could develop a little bit more on this idea of the homeostatic role of politicians as opposed to the politics that comes with a real challenge to the nature of work. Right. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, Spinoza talks about how we we are, we tend to become 
more angry, or possibly more joyful around things that we think of as being free rather than things that were as being necessary. And and to some extent, you know, this is how I, I make sense of a kind of affective divide between the political and the economic, because the economic is always presented as being governed by necessity. You know, I think about this is this is a really old reference, but you know, years and years ago when he first got his start, you know, Michael Moore got his start with his film Roger and Me, right? Where the whole point of this movie was he was going to track down the CEO of General Motors, maybe one big auto company that had laid off tons of people in Flint, Michigan. And he was going to confront this person and, you know, talk to him. I don't know. He never, the whole, he never finds him, but the whole film is this kind of quest. But, you know, and to some extent, it's sort of a foolish quest because if you did get to speak to some CEO and say, why did you, you know, why did you lay off and close down this factory? They would say, they would say a Ford, sorry. They would say, you know, look at, look at, look at prices, look at what the Japanese are doing. They would give a whole series of necessary conditions under which they did not act. They just adapted themselves to, right? And, and to some extent, you know, is what you're talking about, the homeostatic, like politicians function as our representations of, of contingency or of, of individual agency, right? They they are they get our ire because they could have done something different, right? To go back to the the song that's hovering over this episode, right? You know, the the there's a you know the song. This is Oliver Anthony's uh, "Richmond North of Richmond," this viral hit. You know, and part of the 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 people he blames. You know, if you if you look at first of all the way that economic woes are presented in that song, it's taxes, which is striking given the you know how much inflation has been going on on top of a widening gap between wages and cost of living in the past couple of years but it's taxes right not it's not it's not the cost of of fudge rounds that gets him is all angry it's the fact that taxes are using to pay for them also very specific about the height and weight of the person consuming them as if somehow if they 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 were thinner or taller it would be wouldn't be a problem but anyways the point being is that you both get taxes as the form of economic complaint and taxes are things that are seen as under politics they could they could not exist right um, and then of course the the rich men in north richmond the very people who are seen as doing this, it's very intentional. And, and I think that, that, I mean, the, you know, Spinoza offers us a way to understand this distinction based on affect. We're angry at things that we think are intentional and we can't get that angry at things that we see as necessary. Now, of course, the Marxist corollary to this, which is equally important, is that the necessity of the economy is an entirely invented necessity, that capitalism has particular constraints and particular ideas about what it means to be successful as a business, as an enterprise, that are not you know, written in the laws of nature. So that, you know, on the one hand, part of the criticism and, and also, you know, I mean, that the 
representations of necessity and contingency have to be criticized in both ways. We have to see more contingency and what is presented as necessary. And in some sense, see more necessity in what is presented as contingency. And by that, I mean, like what we're just talking about, understanding that politicians' role are to kind of be these sort of affective sort of coalescence points to kind of, you know, produce the particular kinds of anger and so on. And that is as necessary of of a role of, of as anything else. So to see necessity and contingency and the contingency in necessity as well. It's a shame these, these aren't tra- well formally translated, but there's this old, I think, regrettable, regrettable titled, regrettably titled tract by the, the authors of the first Tikkun journal called uh, the economy as black magic. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously the, 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 anthropologically racializing element of of that term is is tragic and there are some other problems with the essay but one of the things that they that they try to show is precisely that that the contingency of necessity is precisely what's missing in the hegelian account of human labor and of the civil society as such so there has been these sort of moments but i think it's really interesting that you're that you're showing that this this sort of oversight can occur in the most casual of conversations, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, lives are at stake, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, so I I think I think that I'm wondering is there a way in which we can isolate necessity as a discursive object and engage in a kind of genealogy of necessity, or is it just does it remain? kind of inaccessible and once we're we're already talking about it we have seeded its grounds like is philosophical necessity something that needs its own its own genealogy hmm. yeah i mean i'm reminded of you know the lines that that you know spinoza in the theological political treatise talks about how yeah in some sense like everything we do is in part of the laws of nature but he also says, when it comes to making sense of things, it's better to to focus on the proximate causes than the ultimate causes, right? And and I think that's that's true. But I also think, you know, when you you said necessity, you know, suddenly my mind was thinking about like, well, what is really necessary? And I was thinking about how, and and this is not something I've talk about this book but it's definitely worth talking about is that you know the the artificial necessity of capitalism as a mode of production the odd thing about it is that it takes place against all kinds of processes of natural necessity that it somehow thinks it can ignore right you know i'm thinking quite simply about infinite growth on a finite planet with finite resources right and and you know if i guess if i wanted to to truly think about necessity it seems to me that we have to think about the way in which our social necessities are on the one hand they're artifice but on the other hand they're also artifice that fly in the face of some of the true necessities of the universe, because, you know, I mean, I do think that, that as a Spinozist, I think that law is spoken of in multiple different senses, but when you mean law as something which is 
affects all particulars in the same way unyielding you're talking about you're talking about natural processes not about human not about human relations hmm. Great. Jason, I I don't want to take too much of your time. You gave us a sort of hard limit for today's yeah. interview, but I just wanted to thank you again for coming on. We'll just leave you with one question. I think one of the upshots of reading this book is that it, it forces us to think about the, the idea of material conditions as being co-productive with the political and social reality, this massive sphere of imminent causation. And the the political upshot to thinking this is the ways in which, for example, forms of social marginalization that has been formed alongside the broader class struggle, or at least mm. class society as we understand it. And and one of the ways that you've been really good online is like you know when when the topic of, for example, wokeness comes up. You know, I mean, think about the ways in which certain folks critique the left from the left, and of course. Wokeness is this perpetual object of discourse, but clearly there's something happening there whereby, you know, the forces that produce culture, the forces that foster and foment social marginalization are clearly moving hand in hand with the invisible hand of capital, as it were. Yeah. And, and I was hoping that you could just kind of leave us with some sort of practical advice or articulate your practical ethos with respect to how we should think about the ongoing culture war and kind of recapture it for Marxists, anarchists, or anybody on the left who, who wants to insert themselves against the struggle against exploitation and domination of all types. Against yeah, what I mean, you've written in the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I would say, and this is something that that wasn't the section I, g I gave you guys, but it's something I do talk about in the book is the way in which, I mean, because you know, one thing is that is that Marx. And this is the one thing I think Marx is really wrong about. He was wrong about how optimistic he was about capitalism and the Communist Manifesto with Engels and this idea that it would do away with all forms of 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 prejudice and hierarchy and even the gender division of labor that it would just produce you know an abstract humanity and i think that you know the way that he was wrong was that you know he didn't sort of at those moments didn't think enough about what he himself had said about capitalism that it's torn between when it comes to labor it's torn between both abstract labor labor indifferent to who is doing it, labor understood in terms of its pure quantitative productivity, and concrete labor. And concrete labor, specific types of jobs, come with a, nece a necessary hierarchy of those types of jobs. And the way in which, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that all discussions about human interchangeability, human equality, and human hierarchy, I think, in our context, need to be situated back in terms of the way in which capital to, capital needs to both needs both of those and needs to bring both of those in relation to each other. And one of the things it most needs to do is reconcile the fact that we are told as bearers of labor power that we can do anything to actualize our potential. And the reality is that there are all sorts of concrete barriers to how we can actualize our potential. So we're constantly kind of yoked back and forth between an image of abstract humanity, which capital needs to cultivate, and the reality of hierarchies and divisions, which capital needs just as well in order to exist. And some of those things you would argue maintain particulars that... Yes. 
particular obstacles that prevent you know certain people from gaining access to resources jobs and so forth yes exactly okay great well once again jason thank you as always you you're an important voice in in this discourse community and on the left and we hope to have you back again at some point yeah sure thanks all right take care